0: Episode 97, How the Devil is Working on You. We know that God exists. We know that angels fell, the angels that rejected God. We know, therefore, that evil angels, evil spirits, demons exist, and there is a great number of them opposed to God and intent on doing everything possible to injure God, so to speak, even though they can't. And most importantly, the way they oppose God is by trying to steal you for all eternity, to steal souls away from God. So it's important to know how the devil and his angels work on us, how they accomplish or attempt to accomplish that aim. It's important for us to remind ourselves daily that there is a spiritual battle going on around us, that the devil and his angels are constantly and tirelessly trying to turn us away from God, sometimes in little ways, perhaps at first imperceptible ways. But of course that God is always offering us the grace to resist these temptations and these tactics of the evil one. One of the best insights as to how the devil works on us and the various ways that he works on us, even in seemingly simple and mundane ways, one of the best guides on that is the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes it as a series of letters between Screwtape, who's a chief demon, and he's training Wormwood, a lesser demon, on how to tempt his subject that is just a, a regular guy. And you can see in the advice that Screwtape gives Wormwood a really impressive insight, the little things the devil can do to gradually turn us away. He can seize on even good things, can seize on good situations, and then turn them or pervert them so that they actually are bad for our soul, without us even noticing it. The devil, like all the angels, is pure spirit and a powerful intellect, much more powerful than ours so he's not like some cartoon villain that keeps getting thwarted because he does stupid things he's much more intelligent than we are and were it not for grace and protection of our guardian angels probably do a lot more harm to us than he is allowed to do currently so remember if you take something good and you pervert it it is more evil depending on how good it was originally so for example you take a really skilled doctor and he becomes evil then he's going to be a really effective murderer because he's familiar with how the body works and what things can be done to end someone's life and to do so more efficiently and in greater number. Same is true here with the devil, that he was among the highest of the angels, one of the most powerful and intelligent of all the angels, and he is corrupted. It doesn't do away with his intelligence and his cleverness. It just turns them to an evil aim which means he is very effective, very devious, very crafty, all of those things, finding subtle ways, very effective ways, to ruin souls. And Keep in mind that he doesn't tire of it. He's a pure spirit. There's no fatigue or exhaustion that comes with the evil spirits working on us. They work on us 24-7, 365, and the devil is not impatient. He will not cease to exist. He does not experience time like we do, and so he's very patient, and it's fine for him to just turn us in one small way, knowing that years later it will affect us in another certain way, or to introduce some evil idea into the world, knowing that in a few centuries it will produce bad fruit. This is how the devil works. This is how all the evil spirits work. And we tend to think of them kind of fantastical, imaginative ways, but really they're concerned with all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions. So the devil is very practical. All the evil spirits are very practical because they know that their whole work is to cause us to sin, and to sin seriously, and to not repent. So the devil and all the evil spirits are very much concerned with your day-to-day life, and that's something that we see in the Screw Tape Letters. There's 30-some letters, 30-some chapters to it. I'm just going to point out a few highlights that are important, you know, principles to consider that maybe you haven't considered before in uh, how the devil works, what his strategy is. The first one in the the first letter deals with appealing to emotion rather than reason. You know, the devil does not like reason because he does not like truth. The devil always tries to pervert truths, to make certain things seem true, to have a veneer of truth, but to actually be false or to be mere emotional appeals. So I'll just quote here from the first letter. And keep in mind that when Screwtape mentions, quote-unquote, the enemy, he's referring to God. So everything is kind of flipped. The things that screw tape calls good are actually bad developments in the spiritual life of the patient so you get that idea he says quote i note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend but are you not being a trifle naive it sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches that might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier at that time humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not and if it was proved, they really believed it. But your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous, end quote. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not considering whether something is true, but whether it's progressive or in style. Appealing to that desire to be with the times, so to speak, it's an emotional appeal, not a rational one. You can make very clear arguments to people nowadays, but if it's considered an old idea, nothing you can say will make it acceptable to them. And this is very much a tactic of the devil, to keep us away from true things, from engaging our reason with reality, and rather to become more concerned with how an idea makes me look. In the second letter, uh, the guiding principle is making the church look merely human, that it's not a divine institution, and to making us direct our attention to the very mundane, very human, perhaps even annoying things that we experience at church, and then to make us think, how could this possibly be a divine thing? So I'll just quote here. I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian, but one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham, gothic erection on the new building estate, When he goes inside he sees the local grocer with an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics mostly bad and a very small print when he gets to his pew and looks around him he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of christ and the actual faces in the next pew Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous." So see how even your little annoyances, things that no doubt you have thought in church, oh such a person, they're probably, I know they're a jerk, and yet they're here, that person annoys me, how can this really be a meeting of heaven and earth? Very clever on the part of the devil. I'll skip now to the seventh letter, and the principle here is the devil and the demons masking their existence. They're very happy to allow us to believe they don't exist or for us to think that it's ridiculous to believe that demons exist. I'll quote, Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. When they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you." Quote. So perhaps you've heard the quote, the devil's greatest triumph is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. It's very much true. If someone actually believes that devils exist, then they're forced to also believe that the spiritual world exists. They can't be materialists if they believe in spirits. And if they believe in spirits, they're forced to confront, of course, the question of God's existence and their eternal existence, their souls. So that's why the devil and the demons are very happy for us to believe that they don't exist and that the idea of devils is just like we see in cartoons, someone in red tights. Moving on to the 13th letter, the principle here is the devil recognizes that authentic pleasures, good pleasures, lead to God or can be an opening for God because God is the source of all good. The goods of nature, the goods of the intellect, all of these things, all of these things have the potential to lead us to God, and so the devil wants us to be confined to imaginary or perverted pleasures. He says, quote, On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed, because he enjoyed it, and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as not to see the danger of this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real, and therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. End quote. So the devil wants to keep us from truth, from reality. It's best if we live in our minds or enjoy artificial or illusory things, because God is the source of all reality and all truth can, through our experience of real goods, or even real pains, bring us to him. Because the more we are united with reality, with objective reality, the closer we are to God. The 14th letter has the principle of crushing humility. The devil hates humility. It's the one thing he can't do that we can do. His characteristic is pride. He won't bend the knee to God. So if he ever senses humility in us, he immediately tries to turn it into pride. He says, quote, I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt and so on through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed." So no doubt you've experienced this, where you're trying to be humble, and then you recognize you're humble, and you get kind of proud of that. That's the devil working on you. In the 15th letter, the principle is to distract us with past and future, but keep us away from the present and eternity. To not think of the present, to not think of eternal things, but to be always preoccupied with what's happened in the past or what might happen in the future, because it's only in the present that God speaks to us and offers grace to us. Things in the past we can't change and we can get hung up on mistakes of the past and the future isn't yet real, so we are not living in reality. He says, quote, "'The humans live in time, "'but our enemy destines them to eternity. "'He therefore wants them to attend chiefly to two things, "'to eternity itself and to that point of time "'which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered to them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure, our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present, end quote. That is kind of self-explanatory. We must always be considering what my duty to God is in this present moment. What is God asking me to do right now? What graces are being offered to me right now? Giving gratitude for the present moment, and also considering our eternal lot, considering our present actions in light of eternity. Skip to the 22nd letter, and that is the devil's use of noise. He says, quote, Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has ever been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. End quote. So we all know that having noise around us prevents us from introspection, prevents us from prayer, prevents us from thinking about deep things. Our age is more occupied with noise than ever. We always need distraction. We're afraid to be alone with ourselves and with our thoughts, and that's exactly what the devil wants. He doesn't want us thinking about things or feeling sorrow for things or thinking of lofty things, and that can be done only in silence or with transcendent, you know, beautiful music. By noise, the devil would mean chaotic music, you know, discordant music, very loud music. But music that is transcendent and beautiful, he hates that. He also hates silence because only in those two situations. Can we really allow our souls to rise up to beautiful things, beautiful thoughts, thoughts of God, thoughts of eternal things, transcendent things? Jumping to the 27th letter, the principle here is making us doubt the effectiveness of prayer. He says, quote, Don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway will come to his mind and thus a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective." So sowing doubts in our minds about prayer and about God's providence because we can maybe point to certain causes of an outcome and we think, well then prayer doesn't work, all the while ignoring the fact that God uses secondary causes. God doesn't make things magically happen. Miracles are not super frequent. God answers our prayers often using secondary means, natural means, to make things happen. But the devil wants us to ignore that fact and think, well, if a prayer comes true, it was just going to happen anyway. If it doesn't come true, then God doesn't exist and prayer doesn't work, even though it's a very irrational and illogical dichotomy. The 28th letter has to deal with how the devil, above all, wants to avoid us dying in the state of grace. He says, quote, You tell me with glee that there is reason to expect heavy air raids on the town where the creature lives. This is a crying example of something I've complained about already, your readiness to forget the main point in your immediate enjoyment of human suffering. Do you not know that bombs kill men? Or do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? End quote. The devil says, no, no, we don't want them to die when they are in grace. We want them to die precisely when they are opposed to God. And because the patient, the guy that they're working on, is living in the state of grace, they don't want him to die. So that's how devious the evil one is. He wants you to die at the moment that you're detached from God. And that's precisely why we always need to be very intent on remaining in the state of grace or returning to the state of grace as soon as possible if we've ever, God forbid, lost the life of grace in our souls. There are so many helpful and wise principles that Lewis articulates in these letters that you really should read it in its entirety if you haven't yet. Let me just end with a quote, maybe you've heard it by Bishop Fulton Sheen. And he talks about the gravity of this spiritual battle and the importance of always being aware of it and always clinging to God and being aware of the devil's tactics. He says, Each and every one of us, at the end of the journey of life, will come face to face with either one or the other of two faces, and one of them, either the merciful face of Christ or the miserable face of Satan, will say, Mine. Mine. May we be Christ's.